wow. <laughs> just, just wow. Uh, let's, let's start by talking about the word lamentation. Now, you'll notice I don't actually have the lamentation setup going on here, and that's on purpose. This one doesn't qualify for me. You may or may not have noticed me use terminology of lamentation one-off and two-off, right? Or one-step one or two-step. This kind of became necessary because as I analyzed more and more and more and more of Trek, it became necessary to kind of discuss the gradient that exists within bad. Because there's a lot of varieties of bad. Like, the alternative factor, I gave that lamentation status, and I stand by that. But if I was to compare that directly to, say, Threshold, now, Threshold wins that easily. Threshold is way worse of an episode. But both are lamentations. You see kind of the problem here. And so it's it's always this kind of judgment call, and there's only so much I can do about it. But at the end of the day, the way it tends to work for me is a really bad episode is one-off, a bad episode is two-off, and a really bad episode that has something else, some extra oomph above and beyond, that's what qualifies for lamentation status. Like, say, Justice over in TNG would absolutely qualify for lamentation status under this current system. And yes, I know what you're going to say. So this one actually doesn't qualify for Lamentation. Why? Because it's a really bad episode. But there's no extra oomph. The characters are at least in character, unlike the alternative factor where they were actually morons the entire time. And there's a few nice little moments and some decent quips, especially from Spock, that basically make the whole thing really bad, not really bad plus. Does that make sense? Or I guess negative? Whatever, you get the idea. I will admit, though... After I finished the episode, I, I wandered around my apartment for, God, I don't know, like five minutes debating. It's like, does it, I mean, does it qualify? Does it not qualify? I mean, there's nothing good in this episode, unless you just like to laugh at it. But something being so bad it's good does not qualify it as being good. It's just so bad it's good. There's a difference there. Let's talk about some behind-the-scenes stuff. Golf plus Western... Uh, I've mentioned them before, so I thought I'd explain that a little bit. Uh, that is an umbrella company. They make uh, cosmetics that allow people to turn into zombies. No, I'm kidding. An umbrella corporation... <laughs> just saying it like that. Uh, it's my own terminology. It refers to something that's the, the highest rung on the ladder and almost always doesn't really produce or actually accomplish anything in its own right. Instead, that is more of a a matter of paperwork and bureaucracy. Basically, it's something that only exists on paper as as a way to legally and in terms of tax and finances categorize keeping everything underneath it all together. Then you have all the companies that actually do stuff, at least in some cases, underneath the umbrella, right? So Gulf Plus Western was an umbrella corporation, and they had several things, including uh, Paramount, now, I'm not going to say which Paramount, because there's actually three Paramounts to discuss here. And that's just one of the reasons why Umbrella Corporations exist. For example, Viacom, which will later become the Umbrella Corporation for Paramount and eventually CBS, is, is something that actually has like three CBSs and I think at that point two Paramounts underneath it. Because, you know, you have Paramount Studios, Paramount Television, right? Anyways, get, let's wrap this up. Gulf Plus Western consumed Desilu and turned Desilu into Paramount Television. That changed, That actually happened previously, and as I mentioned, it was done before uh, after Season 2 was greenlit, but before Season 2 actually started production. 
So if you'll notice at the end of some of these episodes, it'll switch between saying a Desilu production or a Gulf Plus Western production or, or a Paramount Television production. And I think there's like three other variants of the logos and the, the letters that show up at the end because they just couldn't figure out what the heck they wanted to put on these stupid episodes. But you get the idea. So yes, Desilu eventually be, effectively became Paramount Studios. You're probably thinking, well, how does CBS come into this? Well, I actually decided to look this up. So Viacom actually ate Gulf Plus Western in 1995. Or is that an eight? No, I'm pretty sure it's 90. That would make more sense. This also led to several splits, uh, which included the CBSs, all three of them, splitting off and becoming completely separate entities. This is one of the reasons why the rights for Star Trek were all over the place for so long. I've actually referenced this before myself. Because they used to be all under one company, and then there was a, a split, and then there was a remerger. As of right now, in fact, as of 2019, uh, the, the remerger has been completed. It's all back under the same umbrella. I'm not actually sure the the exact name of the umbrella at this point in time, because those the name of those holding companies change all the damn time. But the point remaining that as of now, all of Star Trek is once again under a single roof. Now, when Paramount, I'm just going to say Paramount for the sake of simplicity rather than saying Gulf Plus Western each time, is that cool? When Paramount Television Studios, or whatever the proper term was, took over, they decided to keep Star Trek going with a weird set of changes. I say weird because budget cuts would make sense. Improving the show would make sense. Doing both feels weird. They built multiple additional sets, uh, completely redid several aspects of the existing sets, touching them up, making them look a little bit better, replacing some of the old equipment that was getting kind of worn and used looking and with newer stuff. You know, Just doing a general overhaul to improve the look of the show. Something very similar to what happened in TNG Season 3, if you remember that, where they did just kind of polishing past, basically, of all the sets and the lighting setup and the cameras they were using and all that fun stuff. Similar, similar concept. Then they said each episode had less of a budget and could not go over the six-day mark. That's an interesting decision there. Now, I've talked about the days of shooting thing many times, but to be 100% clear, a six-day mandated shoot means what you really have is five plus a little extra days of shooting. You have five days of principal shooting, and then you've got several hours of the sixth day in order to try and wrap up whatever you haven't done because you, you don't just, it's not like you stop the camera and then that's the end of the day. There's a lot of work to be done after the camera has stopped rolling. So you can see why it, it's basically like five and a half-ish days of filming, which uh, was a problem. And be, this is also a problem because the price of everything was going up. All the actors, the way Hollywood works is the longer you act or the more roles you have or the more recurring roles you are, the more money you get. This is why Robert Downey Jr. made absolutely frickin' bank each successive Avengers movie he was in, because each movie his paycheck went up. We could debate how the relevance of that and how valid that is, and I think it's overpriced in the way it's modeled, but there is at least a logic to that. Think about it for a second. Picard, right? is endemic and iconic to Star Trek TNG. I, I think we can most agree on this, right? Ergo, Patrick Stewart should get a little bit of extra money each season to give him more incentive to stay on, but also to keep him motivated and to, you know, encourage him to do his best. Money is one of the oldest and most basic motivators, but it works for a reason. So, there's a logic there, and I'm not disagreeing with that. I just think the specific implementations tend to be silly. One of my favorite little tidbits here... 
Leonard Nimoy's agent asked for $9,000 an episode. That would be an increase of almost eight times what he had been making in season one. Now, that's just a tactic. That's what agents do. The actual settled amount was $2,500 an episode, which is still a big jump. It's almost double what he was making in season one. But it's nowhere near as the, the skyrocket up to 9000 In fact, there were some concerns that he wouldn't come back and they would have to get someone else to play Spock. Boy, wouldn't that have been weird? One of the people they looked at was actually Mark Leonard for that. Go figure. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. So that was so, so they were crunk, crack, cracking down on the budget, but also putting more money into the show. Furthermore, uh, just as a quick aside here, Andrea Weaver actually showed up for this episode, in fact, and for the episodes uh, up until somewhere in season three. I'm not sure where. Uh, she became the primary women's costume designer for the show. Uh, taking over from Thice's job, which is actually really funny when you think about it. Now, obviously, he would still be involved in several things, and he would still produce several things, but from now on, she would be involved in that particular aspect. There's also some other changes under the hood which would happen over Season 2, but not at the season changeover. I'll mention those as we go, relatively when it happened. It's kind of hard to pinpoint exact episodes in some of these cases. Also, I suppose I should mention that Walter Koenig joined the show as Chekhov. Pavel Chekhov. Why did Pavel Chekhov join the show? Well, first of all, they wanted someone younger. If you pay attention to the cast and crew, remember what I mentioned about these all being television vets? Well, yeah, most of them were in their tw 20s and 30s at this point in time. They wanted someone who was going to appeal to the youth audience to really bring in more younger people to get interested in Star Trek. As if young people would ever be interested in Star Trek. Ridiculous nonsense. I was four or five when I first started watching Star Trek. Anyways. <clears throat> so that was the main goal there. They also kind of wanted to bring in a Russian. There's actually several uh, completely conflicting in, in, in pieces of information from Roddenberry, from Koenig, and from the producers on exactly why they brought in him and wanted him to be Russian. I don't know which one's true, so I'm just going to say they all agree they wanted someone who was going to be fake Russian, because he is a fake Russian. So here you go. Boom. There, there's Pavel Chekhov. You're probably wondering, what the hell's going up with his hair? Well, at that point in history, Walter Koenig's hair was pretty short. Not as short as mine, but still going in that direction. They wanted him to look like Davy Jones. No, no, not that one. Not the one you're probably thinking from a more modern perspective. No, the guy from the Monkees. And they wanted him to have that sex appeal. Because, again, youth market. So they got a wig that looked kind of like the hair that Davy Jones had. And they then had Walter Koenig eventually grow his hair out so he could naturally wear his hair like that. Which is eventually what they did after a few episodes. So with all that out of the way, let's actually talk about the episode. I don't even... All of those notes, by the way, is like this on my page. And then this is the episode. I got nothing to talk about. I, th I think we've actually found the shades of gray of TOS. This is a really, really boring episode. Which is also bad. But even worse, I have nothing to say about it. I, I mean, obviously, just watching a bad episode of television is bad enough. From an analyst's perspective, and from the perspective of me and my stupid self, when I have nothing to say about an episode, it's just the worst feeling. I'm just staring at this like, come on, give me something. Uh, Pevney. This is great. Actually, I want, I'm going to pull out a direct quote. Pad the runtime here a little bit. Give me just a second. Because uh, Pevney directed this episode. 
And he didn't... Nobody had anything good to say about this episode. Every interview was just like, oh my god. But I love Pevney's quote, if you'll give me a moment to find it. Because this episode didn't go live for a while. For once, it didn't go live for a while, not because of special effects, but because they wanted this episode to go live on Halloween. The first and only time, not counting the new stuff, that, TO, that Star Trek has ever done that. This is literally a Halloween episode. So that's why they were going for that release date. Uh, and I quote, That's not a very good one. I hated the actors in that one. That's it. That's that's the whole thing right there. Yeah. It's just... This is written by Robert Block. You may remember him. He wrote uh, What Are Little Girls Made Of, which is actually a pretty decent episode. He will also write Wolf in the Fold, which is pretty decent. But he also wrote this thing. Yeah. Apparently, the intention, and, and as he wrote it, was there was... Well, basically, the episode is one of those sci-fi leans-on-the-effects episodes. You know what I'm talking about. You know, some, some science fiction leans very heavily on character or script or tight plotting or whatever in order to be fascinating and interesting sci-fi. Some sci-fi leans on special effects to get across its point. Now, that's not a dumbing-down comment, and that's not an elitist comment. There's nothing wrong with that as long as the effects can hold up because there's plenty of really good, awesome stuff you can do with proper visual effects. And in some cases, the impact simply isn't going to be there unless the visual effects are there to back up the idea. So I am actually on board with that on paper. Sometimes the visual effects are just there to be flashy and, you know, turn off your brain nonsense. I'm, you know, which, sure, whatever, if you're into that, go for it. No, no, no judgment. But what I'm trying to say is this was supposed to be an effects-heavy episode done in the 60s, 67. And it's exactly what you'd expect from that. How many of you, honest question, how many of you didn't realize at first that the cat was supposed to be giant, room-sized? When I first watched this episode, did not realize that at all. There's a rumor going around, which I've never been able to verify, that the witches that show up for the big thing in the black turtlenecks were supposed to be headless. It's just the lighting department didn't get it right, so you can see the sweaters they're wearing. So they, they're just women wearing black sweaters with some makeup. <sighs> yeah, this, this, this episode is just... The remaster helps a little bit. Uh, obviously, it, it touches up the the effects of the ship and the effects of the castle quite a bit. The, the difference is night and day. But what really amuses me most is at the very end, excuse me for uh, skipping ahead here, there's the bit where the aliens are there and they're like, and in the original you could literally see the, the cables or wires or whatever that were handling the puppets. It was bad. The remaster gets rid of the wires but leaves the puppets, which were made of pipe cleaners, blue cotton, crab pincers, and other trash. Literal trash, by the way. I'm not saying that facetiously. They don't look as bad as I was thinking. It's just the way they're shown is really bad. What they do is they try to crop in a really tight shot. So you can see all the details of them. And the camera obviously is just having trouble dealing with that. And the way they move doesn't really work for it. So while it's not as bad as it could otherwise be in limitations of time and tech, it's, it's still bad. Oh yeah, by the way, DeSaul, he's the guy in charge of the ship in this episode. He actually will never show up again. This is his very final episode. See you around, DeSaul. He will eventually be, uh, well, I say eventually, 
he his kind of role in this episode will functionally be replaced by Scotty, who it's mentioned to actually be the second in command of the ship in the future. It's kind of been implied before now since he took over, remember, in Taste of Armageddon. But he will be officially ratified later on, which means he's the data equivalent, which actually that makes a lot of sense. So, um, so we have another uh, godlike aliens, except these guys are clearly reality photoshoppers instead of being reality warpers. It's it's made very explicitly clear here. They have to have the functionality, and when they lose the wand, they literally die because they're just that alien to this galaxy, which. Sure. <laughs> um, they try to... They, they kill the person. They never explain why they kill the dude. If it wasn't for the killing of the dude, this episode would actually make a lot more sense to me. But then again, it also would make less sense. So they, 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 they kill the dude. They leave the warning. And then they show up. And it's like, this has all been a test. Which, if I'm being honest, maybe it's because of the performance or maybe it's because of the construction of the episode. But that all sounds like BS to me. Like he actually was trying to warn them away. And it, oh, that didn't work. Well, in this case, I'll actually throw you up against your own people. Oh, that doesn't work. Well, in this case, I will actually go ahead and try to bribe you. Oh, that doesn't work. And it's just, okay, now what do I make up? Why, uh, there's this really funny part, though. Other than the dead crew member and the crew members being here, there's no reason for Kirk to give a damn. Now, I bring that up because he himself mentions that they are actively here exploring. And while it's not stated outright, the implication is that Kirk isn't going to leave them alone, even though he has been asked to, because screw you, I'm here to do my job. It kind of reminds me of that whole we're going to evacuate the colony against their will thing. I don't know, just the vibe I got from that. So then Chekhov shows up and he's on drugs. I've seen Walter Koenig act. I've seen him do good stuff. He's act, he's one of my favorite characters on Babylon 5, for God's sakes. But he he's on drugs in this episode. And what's funny is that's actually going to... I know there's at least one more episode after that where he will also be giving the drugs performance. <clears throat> he gets better. He actually gets a decent amount of screen time in season two because George Decay was actually uh, doing some kind of other filming, and so Chekhov just sort of naturally assumed his position in the stories. <laughs> uh, so we see the Trelane idea again, the lack of knowledge and understanding, which leads to the whole situation. And they mention they have to do their business for the old ones because, of course, Cthulhu gives so much of a damn about the Starship Enterprise. And they mention the sensation thing. And this leads to Sylvia and Kirk, and Kirk seducing Sylvia. This is actually... I know this is going to sound weird. This is one of the saving graces of the episode. Kirk trying to seduce Sylvia. And the actress who plays Sylvia. And you're probably thinking, what? Hear me out for a second. It's made very, very clear that where they're from, they don't actually have most of the things we have. Duh. But it's also made very clear that things like sensation, most notably tactile sensation, but also emotional sensations, are things they're not used to processing, at least in the ways that they are currently feeling it. In other words, they are basically inhabiting bodies rather than simply projecting bodies. Now, that's a key distinction because it means they feel everything that the bodies that they're pushing through also feel, right? Sense, Mike? So the idea here is that she is so enamored with the very concept and idea of sensation that she's just, oh, she's swimming in it. I love it. And it actually makes her very, very dangerous because sensation can go a lot of directions in a lot of different ways. Uh, just see the Dark Eldar over in Warhammer 40k for an excellent example of that, or Slanesh in general, if you want to go down that road. But of course, this also then makes her really, really susceptible to seduction. 
You'll notice one of the first things he does is he just puts his hand on her shoulder. It's a really basic thing. It's not a big deal, but imagine you've never felt skin to skin before, ever. And someone puts a hand on your shoulder. This is actually really easy to explain. Do you remember the first time when you were very young, or however young you were, I was 11, uh, when the first time where a insert gender you're interested in physically touched you? Now, I'm not talking about, don't get crude. Uh, in my case, it was actually, she literally just sat down next to me. To the point where, you know, we were touching. We were, we were arm to arm, just like this, sitting next to each other, leaning up against each other. Just a simple affection thing. But I will never forget that sensation because it was like electricity. You remember that? You remember that sensation? Because that's all you have to think of when it comes to trying to understand why Sylvia is just absolutely melting like butter around Kirk for this scene. It's only when she touches her crystal and gets her scan, basically, that she's like, wait a second, you're faking it. Oh, you're trying to use me. What the hell? And, of course, then she gets another sensation. <laughs> this then leads to the escape sequence, which is actually moderately amusing, mostly thanks to Spock snarking. But my favorite part is when the giant cat shows up. Excuse me, giant cat shows up. It just looks terrible. God, even for the time, it looks terrible. And... We've, the reason it's a cat is because a cat is the most ruthless and terrifying creature. What? <laughs> what? A cat? <laughs> Even going back to the saber-toothed tiger. Excuse me? Now, for added fun, I, sh I should totally throw together a video of this. I wonder if I could. I wonder if I could actually do that. Oh my god, I'm bleeding. That's from my foot earlier. I, I jabbed it. I think it was actually bleeding. I'll have to clean it up later. Um, <clears throat> this episode was so bad, it made me bleed. I'm, I'm debating. I, I should totally do a thing. You know, they just, <clears throat> Screw it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. As you know, a cat is the most terrifying and dangerous of all creatures. Truly a ruthless animal, going back to the terrifying saber-toothed tiger. Uh, I got nothing else. The episode ends. They die, which we I'd feel bad about, except for the fact that they killed a guy. So you know that that sucks. The end. Oy vey, not a very good place to start season two with. Let me tell you. But then again, season one started pretty badly as well. A lot of season ones start pretty badly when it comes to Trek. What? Why is that a thing? It's okay. Because, so, I, I want to talk about one last thing before we, we scooch on here. Uh, I've talked before, uh, by now I think the first season two episode of Enterprise has already come live. I've already recorded it from my perspective. The reason I bring it up is there's something I like to call the season two curse when it comes to Star Trek. And that's that, while the season one stuff is usually more reviled because they're still figuring out what to do and the makeup isn't there and the writers aren't there. Everyone's just figuring it out, right? You know, that's true across most Star Treks. But the season twos tend to be kind of the worst for a certain factor of worse. You know, they're either more boring or more forgettable or they just have more general dreck in them. There are exceptions. Well, actually, I can't think of any exceptions off the top of my head. But, I mean, look at Voyager Season 2. Look at DS9 Season 2. Look at TNG Season 2. Look at Enterprise Season 2. Now, what happens in all of the cases I just mentioned is there's usually like an episode or two or three which are really good, and then the rest of it is just this sea of... You know what I mean? Having said all that, I'm actually really curious if TOS is going to have the Season 2 curse. I don't know. We'll find out as we go through it. 
next time.